Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. The U.S. Army often prides itself on the claim that it is one of the most successful meritocratic organizations in American history, often ahead of American society at large in developing policies that allow all soldiers to be treated with equal dignity and respect. There is some justification for that pride, especially with regard to race, where Executive Order 9981 in 1948 mandated desegregation in the armed services years before the landmark Supreme Court decision of Brown versus Board of Education. Nevertheless, it is worth noting that even if it has sometimes been ahead of society, the Army has also had its struggles getting to where it would like to be. Two decades after EO 9981, the Army faced intensified internal conflict between white and black soldiers over issues ranging from haircuts to promotions to the equal application of military justice. In the 1960s and 1970s, as the Army struggled with an increasingly frustrating war in Vietnam and domestic unrest, led to riots in many major American cities, military and civilian leaders tried to develop new policies to make the army live up to its stated principles. The story of that struggle and its largely successful conclusion is the subject of a brilliant new book, An Army of Fire, How the U.S. Army Confronted Its Racial Crisis in the Vietnam Era by Dr. Beth Bailey. And we are delighted to have Professor Bailey here on A Better Peace to discuss her work. Beth Bailey is a Foundation Distinguished Professor of History at the University of Kansas, a two-time winner of the Army Historical Foundation Distinguished Writing Award. She is the author, in addition to An Army of Fire, of numerous books and articles on American military history, including America's Army, Making the All-Volunteer Force, and The First Strange Place, Race and Sex in World War II Hawaii. Welcome to A Better Peace, Professor Beth Bailey. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So, Beth, what led you? Is, is it a natural progression from uh, the the all volunteer force book to an army of fire? How do you get from here to there? Oh, I think it's absolutely natural, but it took me a while to find my path. Um, <laughs> so, I'm a military historian in the sense that I write about the military as an institution. You know, so it's it's not operational history. It's not war in society. Um, it's it's really what I see as an essential piece of military history is to think about you know what the military is, what the U.S. Army is, and how it functions. And so, um, as a historian, the way I got to an army of fire is because I'm really interested in how social change happens, and I'm I'm fascinated by how people try to solve problems. You know, whether it's individuals or institutions, organizations, nations. Um, and so here, I, I was uh, drawn to a crisis that I saw when I was looking at the advent of the all volunteer force and the army's response. Um, but but one of the things that they confronted in that process was the question of race. And as I started thinking, what do I want to do next? Do I want to do a deep dive into something I've looked at before? Do I want a totally new topic? I, I just got drawn into that question of this crisis that, that army leaders at the time, black and white, started 
referring to as, as the problem of race. Um, and, and you talk about some of the solutions in the introduction, but the crisis was violence. I mean, the crisis was that it got to the point in West Germany in the early 1970s that NCOs, black and white, started to say they refused to go into barracks unless they were carrying sidearms. Um, the, the racial crisis was so bad that there were roving gangs beating up members of opposite races, that there were fights in bars and the barracks that spilled into the surrounding communities. It, it wasn't, it was the Vietnam era, but it wasn't so much in combat in Vietnam as it was in places like West Germany and the United States, Okinawa, South Korea, Thailand. Um, so, Senior army leaders got to the point where they were concerned that this racial crisis, this violence, this conflict compromised the ability of the U.S. military to fulfill its mission of national defense. And and that's why they became so directly concerned about trying to figure out how to solve this problem, not because of the moral implications, not because of the demands for social change on the part of young black soldiers, but because it threatened the ability of the army to fulfill its mission. Right. Well, and and the fact that it takes until the point where the army thinks that it's literally interfering with the ability to complete the mission, is that why things got so bad before there were any concentrated efforts to deal with it? Or how was was the army caught off guard by the intensity of the problem? Say after 1968, you start the book with a very interesting discussion of a, a literally an uprising in a military prison in Vietnam in 1968, and and so the idea is was the army just well we were still completing our combat functions, so therefore this wasn't a problem until suddenly it was way too much, yeah. um, and and. And for reason, because in many ways, uh, by the early 60s on up through until around 1968, it was arguably correct for the army to insist and the military in general to insist that it was doing a better job fulfilling a mission of equal opportunity and offering opportunities to people of diverse racial and ethnic backgrounds than American society as a whole. Um, and as so as in the streets of the United States, as, as there was you know, profound unrest, uprisings, riots, the military was relatively calm until around the late 1960s. And the, um, the, the violence you spoke about at the prison at Long Bin Jail was, in fact, at the same time that the tanks rolled into the streets in Chicago during the Democratic National Convention. So, you know, it, this was about the war in Vietnam much more than about race, but nonetheless, it was all a conjoined sense of crisis in American society. So the, the standard narrative on the part of army leaders uh, was that we're successful. Uh, there was an NBC uh, in in 1967, there was an NBC special called Same Mud, Same Blood, um, which message was exactly the title. It's the same mud, it's the same blood, we transcend race out here. Um, army leaders were really fond of saying, I see only one color and that's OD, olive drab for those people you know, who probably not your listeners don't know what that stands for. Um, this, this was a narrative of success, and black leaders and the, many people in the general population in gen, in, endorsed this understanding. They, they did point to the army as the, the best site of success of integration. 
in the United States or to the military in general. Um, but increasingly, that's not what young black soldiers were looking for. This is a rising era of black power. So the army was caught flat-footed in many ways and didn't want to deal with race. But then it, it got to the point where there just was no option. And then, and then they had to. And that's one of the things that, that you talk about in the book that's really fascinating is, is how, how much effort it takes to get army leaders to think about the fact that it's not just a matter, you can't just say, I only see OD. Um, that, that you needed to understand that in an era of increasing racial consciousness, you had to find a way to allow people to express their individuality or their, to express their identity within the army. And that the army seemed to have, I think about this about with the issue of, of haircuts. I got to ask you about haircuts. Is what a big deal this was. Uh, of trying to figure out how to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me let me just start with the part of recognizing identity sure. because that was a, crit, a critical moment in this history. And um, in 1969, the Secretary of the Army, Stanley Reeser, went before the AUSA and gave you know the annual address, and he essentially said, short of the the war in Vietnam, the U.S. war in Vietnam biggest challenge we're facing right now is race. And at that moment, he said um, something that is, I don't know, in, in many ways unprecedented. He says, um, you know, you can put, um, he used the, the language of the time, the respectful language of the time, um, you, you can put a, quote, Negro in uniform, but that doesn't mean he just becomes a soldier. It means he becomes a, quote, Negro soldier. We have to recognize racial background. We have to recognize racial identity. And, you know, this is a huge change because the Army was really proud of being colorblind. The Army was really proud of, I see only one color and that's OD. Uh, they had gone to the point, the military in general, of removing racial designations on all sorts of forms, trying to remove the possibility of racial bias bias in, in the ways in which promotions worked or, you know, various forms of discipline, et cetera. Um, so by becoming color conscious, that opened up a whole set of other questions, and and hair was the probably the one that is is the most fun to talk about. Um, I don't think that most people who weren't at least uh, you know preteens in 1970 can understand how important hair was to people at that time. I will confess that in the late 1960s, I was in middle school and almost refused to go to the dance with my boyfriend because his mother made him get a haircut. And I was so embarrassed by that fact. This does not speak well of me. <laughs> but hair mattered so much. And as as um, as young black men who are drafted into the military or even who volunteer for the military are embracing notions of black pride and black identity, the idea that they are supposed to be forced to have what army slang referred to as a white wall haircut, which tells you an awful lot, uh, just made people immensely angry and frustrated. They wanted to express their black identity. Now, this goes all against Army precepts. I mean, this is a uniformed service. This is, a, this is a service that does not allow for expressions of identity that go beyond that of, of soldier. And so the fact that Army leaders decided to experiment with allowing people to wear afros, even if they're modified afros, is an enormous change. And, you know, the Army sends a, a black barber all over the world to teach 
barbers, local barbers and army barbers in the PXs, how to cut black hair. And they change the ways in which um, afros are are regulated. The, the regulations governing haircuts go from no mention to 37 words to 609 words in the space of a year and a half. Suddenly they're talking about the bulk of haircuts and not just the length of haircuts. I mean, it's it's recognizing that army regulations default white and saying we have to see color in order to be equal. We're not asking for some differential set of understandings. We are saying that we have to recognize the ways in which equality re- demands that we see difference. And that difference was physical in the term of hair, but it became a whole lot of other things. But really quickly, one other piece of that, because the Army has uniformity of regulations, if you say we're going to recognize uh, various forms of cultural symbols, you know, whether it's hair or, or slave bracelets or whatever, you can't say only black soldiers can do that. And the cultural symbol that a lot of Southern white soldiers wanted to adopt was the Confederate battle flag, which did not make race relations improve, right? So there are contradictions between army practice and the solutions that they're trying to embrace. Well, because that's what I I see that issue of, you know, the idea is to encourage equality. Or, or um, but but you at the same time recognize identity. That's exactly what you run into, right? If if my what I think of is as an expression of my identity, you think of as divisive or off-putting, right? How is the army supposed to regulate that? So how did the army square that circle in the 1970s? And and I would say, and and how do the, the kinds of solutions that they propose? How do they reflect, let's say, the army's institutional logic or institutional culture? Yeah. So I'm going to start with the institutional logic and culture because that's sort of the way I came into this book. Um, When I was working on America's Army, um, I I met a man. He came into my class at the University of New Mexico who um, was um, – retired from the army. He had been a LERP in Vietnam. He then was the first gold star recruiter uh, in the era of the all-volunteer force. And he became my go-to person when I was trying to figure out how things worked. And I was always emailing him and saying, what about this? What about this? And finally, he got exasperated with me. And he said, you keep trying to make sense of the army like it's a university. (laughs) It's not. And so I started thinking about institutional logic and institutional culture because you know I was trying to make sense of it like it was a university because that's the world I live in and that's what's normal to me. Um, and so I started paying a lot of attention to the ways in which the, you know, the Army's culture and history and traditions and structure, organization, policies, practices, et cetera, uh, structure the ways it defines problems and the ways it approaches problems. So when the army's trying to square the circle, when when army leaders are trying to figure out what do we do about the problem that the way we try to solve the problem creates another problem, um, they they turn to their usual mechanisms of of solving problems. And in this case, what they turn to was education and and training. And they created educational processes. Uh, they they made race relations training mandatory and basic training, even though commanders in the field were complaining that the the soldiers that were coming to them weren't sufficiently trained to go into combat. They took away six hours from other training and put it into race relations. Um, but because it was the early 1970s and it was the the sort of, um, you know, a period of, of sensitivity training and uh, a, a lot of things that um, 
were perhaps a little woo-woo touchy-feely by our standards today, that's what they invested in because that's what was leading the way in corporate America and such. But it, it was a very complicated process because they were they were taking sort of basically trained uh, junior officers and NCOs and asking them to make people aware of their racism. But and and it was an explosive situation because if you have a unit where people may be racist, but nonetheless they're working together, you know that's okay. As opposed to once you've said this in some kind of uh, you know exploratory fashion, uh, it's hard to not hear that the person that you're working with uh, believes in white supremacy. So this was an explosive thing. But the other thing they doubled down on, and this was really useful, is to educate people about the different backgrounds of people coming into the army. A lot of it was unfortunately essentialist. A, a lot of it was. Uh, things that we would critique today, but the effort was there. The effort was to understand the legacies of slavery, to think about the ways in which African-Americans were thinking about black pride and black power and, and the impact of Jim Crow, and to make white soldiers understand that background. Um, and so much of it was useful. The impulse was definitely useful. It was sometimes uh, uh, um, an expression of the 1970s that is best left in the 1970s. So we don't need as many encounter groups. I was thinking of, yeah. to use a good 70s term. Yeah. Um, I know that the book is about the Army, um, and, and yet you, you talk about the Army leadership and you talk about the, the DOD. It, did the other services sort of wait for the army to figure things out and then figure out whether they would do it like the army because the army was bigger? Or was there any kind of inter-service competition on getting these questions right? Oh, they were all looking over their shoulders at each other. Mm -hmm. And the complication was that if one service instituted a policy that the other service, uh, like if, if sailors were allowed to wear beards and soldiers weren't, um, Army leadership was going to get an earful about that, right? And Zumwalt in the Navy was much more progressive on those kinds of quote, lifestyle issues than Army leadership was. The Army got the idea of the cutting Afro and, and this uh, black barber, Willie Morrow, from the Marine Corps, which had done a little exploration of that, and it got covered in stars and stripes, and suddenly the Army was scooping him up. Um, so the reason that I look just at the Army in part is because I really do believe that institutional culture matters, and there's just no way that the Army's culture is the same as the Marine Corps culture, which is certainly not the Air Force culture or the Navy culture. Um, but everybody was trying to contend with these issues, and the Department of Defense was pushing the various services to do so. Um, the Army had a particularly good set of relationships with members of the NAACP, uh, and so that was a little bit helpful in, in determining which directions it was going to go, perhaps better than the other services. Um, everybody was trying it. They were all looking over their shoulders at each other. Um, the Army was the biggest service, and so it was going to have the greatest impact. Sure. And it's the service that I understand the best. So I was not about to try and go and figure out the Air Force at this point in I, my career. I totally get that part, right? I mean, after all this, after all this effort to understand the Army. Well, and of course, this is where we get to that interesting question of a correlation and causation, right? Because the in, in the story that you tell, right, things begin to get better over the course of the 1970s. But at the same time, right, over the course of the 1970s is when the Army uh, is no longer fighting in Vietnam. And when the draft is replaced by the all-volunteer force, and as somebody who's written about the AVF, um, how much does improved, how, how much can we understand improved relations within the service? Um, how much can we relate that to the fact that they're not fighting a frustrating war anymore, 
and that they're all volunteers. Does that, is that enough to explain it? Or uh, in other words, is, does army policy fix this problem or do these other exogenous factors fix this problem? I would add some more exogenous factors Please. because I think uh, what is also happening is a change in the ways in which um, black Americans are thinking about social change over the course of the 1970s. Um, and uh, that, that that also has an impact. But yeah, it's, it's the all-volunteer force uh, makes a big difference in part because people are not being drafted. Mm-hmm. Um, people of you know any race or ethnicity, they're not being drafted. And so if they hate the army, it's sort of, you know, they're the ones who joined. So that that's part of it. Um, it didn't it didn't change it immediately because um, initially in the wake of the U.S. war in Vietnam and, and uh, the, the, the terrible reputation that the Army uh, had in the wake of that war among the American public, most people who joined the Army were not people that the Army defined as high quality. Um, and so racial tensions actually increased for a while because of that, um, as both white and black soldiers uh, came from backgrounds uh, that were, were markedly violent um, in many cases and with less education than the Army desired. Uh, it was up to 50% of Army accessions by the late 1970s were cat four. That's not an enviable position to be in when you're trying to maintain order and discipline. Um, but but yeah, it was it was changes in American society in general. It was um, a move to the all volunteer force. Um, it was changing demographics once the army starts to be able by the 1980s to recruit what it defines as high quality um, enlisted troops. Um, but the army really did make changes that mattered, and and that's where I come out. The army embraced changes in leadership. The army changed the way its military justice system functioned. The the army really thought hard about how to educate people to recognize differences among the troops and to communicate those differences. The army addressed problems of off-post discrimination. Um, It it uh, tried to look to affirmative action as a way to have a, a greater number and percentage of, of black officers, especially senior officers. Uh, it, it really did take significant steps, and those steps paid off. Uh, it might not have worked if the larger context hadn't changed. If we had stayed in Vietnam until you know 2000, it would have certainly been a different story. Uh, but you know, again, that wasn't going to happen. So I, I noticed when you were talking about the the early days of the all volunteer force that 50% were category four. So the army had four categories of sort of skills and aptitudes, five. And so and yeah, and and so the uh, the idea is is that if if in order to meet accession targets, they were having to go further and further down the list. So in the, in, yeah. yeah, and, and this improved in, in the 80s. Oh, go ahead, please. Oh yeah, huge. They, they had to go down the list and they also misnormed the, um, the entrance exams. Um, the AFQT was misnormed for a while. And so they were, you know, they were thinking they were getting quote, by their definitions, higher quality. Um, but you know, quality is also a question of an earned high school diploma, um, which, you know, by Army standards means it shows the discipline to show up. Um, and, and yeah, so, it, you know, today, in general, by the 1980s, it was 2% uh, people from, from Category 4, and 5 isn't allowed. So, you know, it was an enormous change. Right. Well, and and so then I ha- I have to ask this, thinking about, you know, your book is important for its historical value. It's also important because... Questions of diversity, equity, inclusion, of course, are very much on people's minds today. Um, how do you think uh, 
we talk about the army made success, right? You point out that it, that it is a success story to a certain extent in the early seventies, but we also know that over the past 20, 25 years, there have been concerns that have now that we've gone back to being a, a let's say a deployed force rather than a garrison force. There's a lot of pressures on the army. Um, and there are lots of discussions about the appropriate way to deal with issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the contemporary world. And in what ways does your story, can your story inform the policy discussion of today? Um, or in, in what ways do you think it's different today? Well, it's certainly different today, um, in part because uh, we as a society and the Army as an institution has recognized the extent to which diversity is not just a question of black and white. Um, you know, uh, Hispanic soldiers are outnumbering by percentage black soldiers today. Yeah. Um, and this was very much based on conflict between black and white soldiers. Um, but it, to my mind, what it does show is the creativity that the army can display when forced to confront a problem. Sadly, in my story, what forced them to confront a problem was an outbreak of racial violence, uh, not uh, simply a moral commitment. But I mean, given that the Army's mission is national defense, in, in many ways, it makes sense that it was a question of institutional survival that forced people to take those stances, whether whether they were people who believed in the morality and the ethical nature of what they were doing or whether they were people who would never in their lives think that a, an integrated force was a good idea. Because it was a mandate in terms of institutional survival, they embraced a set of of, um, of practices that in many ways were, were really, really creative. So to my mind, that is a piece of the history that is worth the Army paying attention to and excavating, the, the, the extent to which creative, it can bring creativity as an institution to solving problems. I think that the Army has been much less successful in terms of diversity when it comes to gender than it, when it has come to race and ethnicity. Um, and, uh, you know, despite what often on paper or in terms of policy seem to be excellent, uh, implementation continues to be an issue. And that's one of the things that you see in this book as well. But when I started this book, you know, there, there are two criteria for success here. One criterion is the armies. Um, and the army completely succeeded because what it wanted to do is to save the institution, to make sure that the institution remained a powerful force for defending the United States. That's that. You know, no question it succeeded. Did it succeed in implementing a, a, a paradise of, of racial comedy? No. Um, you know, certainly we know today that there are continuing issues around uh, around race and ethnicity, around gender, around sexuality um, that, that the army confronts and people within the army are struggling to make it a better place. Many of them struggling from below, not struggling from a position of policy. Um, but I think that there are lessons here. And I think simply also thinking about institutional logic and institutional culture as a way to approach defining the problem and understanding what kinds of solutions are more and less likely to succeed is something that I can offer to those people who are thinking about army policy and practice, and also thinking from the interior about how to change the army's culture to make it more uh, more functional as a diverse institution. Right. Well, and that, that idea that you, you can't expect, that you, you cannot necessarily parachute, to use a military term, you can't parachute into an organization from outside and say, you all need to change this, this, and this, get right on it. I'll, I'll check back on you in five years, right? An organization has to be able to do that for itself. I, I wanted to, at the very end of the book, right? You actually, you have this quote in a couple places, but I'm 
I'm flipping through my copy because I lost my place. But you, you have a great comment, a quote from, from Congressman Ron Dellums, right? And that is that uh, or he wasn't congressman at the time, I don't think, or was, was, was he in Congress? At the yeah, time? He, yes, was. he was. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, right, as powerful as the army is, um, it, co- it could change and it did change when it needed to mm-hmm. change. And to recognize that, right, is that's what, that's what strong institutions aren't perfect, right? Strong institutions can get better, I think, is a, a, a way to think about this story. Yeah. Um, Ron Dellums was um, a powerful member of the Black Congressional Caucus. And in the introduction, I offer that claim that he makes. And in the conclusion, I come back to it um, and say, yeah, he was right. It could change. It did change. Not sufficiently. There's still work to do. But it certainly proved that it's possible to change this massive and fundamentally conservative institution when it sees the necessity of change to fulfill its fundamental mission. And that is you know, ultimately, right, it's a complicated story. It's a at times frustrating story, but it is, uh, it, it's, a, it's a moderately hopeful story, let's say, by the end. And it's a story that I hope that everybody who will rush out and get a copy of An Army of Fire will read. The book is available in bookstores now. Beth Bailey, thank you so much for appearing on A Better Piece to talk about your work. Thanks so much, Ron. I really enjoyed it. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs. Let us know what you think. We always are interested in hearing from you. Please take a moment to uh, subscribe to A Better Piece on your podcatcher of choice, because after listening to a conversation like this, why wouldn't you want to subscribe to A Better Piece? And after you have subscribed, please rate and review this podcast, because that's how other people can find out about us so that we can continue to grow this community. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you to the next one. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.